Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. What we're going to be doing today is actually playing the first part of a debate that I had the privilege of being a part of. It's called the Calvinism Debate, and we debated uh, total depravity. This is going to be part one in a series of the five points of Calvinism, commonly known as TULIP. Um, I was late in the game to this debate. Originally, Lynn Pettis of the Bible-thumping wingnut was supposed to be in this, but he was not able to, so I was a last-minute addition. Um, I joined Tyler Vela of the Freed Thinker podcast, and he and I were on the side of Calvinism, of the doctrines of grace. And our opponents in the debate were Leighton Flowers and Braxton Hunter. And as you know, I've had many interactions with Leighton Flowers in many different podcasts, and he's been on Mono One. He is a traditional Southern Baptist, non-Calvinist, and his partner was Braxton Hunter, who is the president of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. And it was a a wonderful opportunity to, just as brothers in Christ, to uh, dive into the biblical text and to really expose each other's views and to talk about total depravity and total inability. Um, Our host was Owen Pond of the Christus Victor Network. And he is the one that moderated the debate. And you can actually go find this debate on his website, his podcast, the Christus Victor Network. Um, All of us have our own podcast, and we're actually going to be um, doing this uh, debate, hosting this debate on all our various podcasts. It's a two-hour debate. We're only going to be doing the first part in this podcast. We're going to break it up into um, two-hour segments. And this first portion really deals with opening statements, affirmative uh, of the view of total depravity, affirmative of the view of of that we aren't totally um, unable to come to Christ. And then there's cross-examination. And then we're going to break it up in the next part of the podcast. Part two is is going to be an actual, more of a dialogue and open discussion where we ask each other questions. And so it was a a wonderful opportunity for brothers in Christ to to highly disagree on on these issues, but to uh, to cordially come to an understanding of, of being able to interact with when he, with each other. So let's listen to part one of the Calvinism debate: total depravity. Hello, and welcome to the Calvinism debate. Today, we're going to be discussing the first of the classic five points of Tulip, and we are going to have uh, an affirmative and Another affirmative on the other side, my name is Owen Pawn. I host uh, a new podcast called Ask a Millennial Christian, uh, which is under the purview of the Christus Victor Network. And so we have a couple different podcasts on that. I will be moderating the discussion today. We hope that it's very informative and we hope that we're able to get to the salient, relevant issues of contention um, in this space uh, between fellow brothers in Christ. So first, let's start with who's going to take the affirmative position on total inability. Um, Tyler and Sean, would you just give us 30-second introduction about yourself before we jump into the debate? Sure. My name's Tyler Vela. I am currently the host of the Freed Thinker podcast and blog. You can find me at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com uh, or on the Facebook group for the Freed Thinker podcast. And I'm Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. 
Um, my podcast is called Understanding Christianity. Uh, you can find that on iTunes or on my website, seancole.net. Okay. And on the other side, who will be affirming ability, we have Leighton Flowers and Braxton Hunter. Could you say a bit about yourselves? Sure. My name is Leighton Flowers. I am the Director of Youth Evangelism for the Baptist General Convention of Texas and an adjunct professor of theology at a couple of different universities. Um, I have a, a blog and podcast that you can find at Soteriology101.com. And I am Braxton Hunter. I, uh, you can find me at BraxtonHunter.com. I'm also the president of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary in Newburgh, Indiana. And you can find us there at TrinitySemSEM.edu. And um, uh, I'm excited to be here today. All right, so we hope that this will extend into a five-part series, and today we're just going to be dealing with uh, the T in TULIP, which is traditionally known as total depravity, but we are specifying total inability. And there's a reason for that, and we're going to get to it in the debate. So the Calvinist side is going to take the lead on that. They're going to have a 15-minute affirmative, and then the other side is going to be able to ask them questions for 15 minutes. So we're really going to focus on interaction here which I hope will sort of set this apart from other discussions in this space. So if you are ready, Tyler and Sean, I don't know who's going to take point here, but you are ready to go. Well, thank you for allowing us to be a part of this. Um, I just want to begin with a definition of total depravity and what our position is, and that is the scriptures clearly teach that every part of man's being has been affected by the fall. Now, this doesn't mean that humans are as sinful as they could be. That would be utter depravity. But what it does mean, we believe the Bible teaches that sin has so radically corrupted the mind, the heart, and the will of humans that as a result, humans are incapable of doing anything good or pleasing to God and cannot in and of themselves choose positively for Christ. And so that's our definition of total depravity. And it also flows into what we believe about total inability. Um, just a, a basic passage of scripture that addresses this is Romans chapter 5, verse 12, uh, where Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, almost all evangelical Christians will believe in uh, original sin, unless you are a Pelagian, which I know that my, my cohorts on the other side are not. And so all of us are operating from the idea that sin has affected humans. Um, Psalm 51.5, uh, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we are conceived from the very moment of conception. We come out of our mother's womb as sinners. Ecclesiastes 9.3, this is an evil that's done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. The hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. And so most evangelical Christians will agree that humans are born sinful. The real question, the real divide is, is to what degree? Um, is it total or radical depravity? Is it total inability or is it partial depravity? Are we sick? Are we actually spiritually dead? And so that's where the divide comes. And we're arguing that the scriptures teach that man is totally depraved and totally unable to come to Christ. As Ezekiel 36 says, we have hearts of stone that need to be removed and replaced with hearts of flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jeremiah 13, 23, 
Uh, Jeremiah asked this great question, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then also, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? And, and the metaphor is very interesting. An Ethiopian can't just wake up one day and say, I want a different skin color because it's his nature to have the skin color he has because he's born with that. Uh, The same way with a leopard. A leopard can't wake up one day and say, hey, I want to be a tiger or I want to be a lion because he's born that way. And so basically what Jeremiah is saying, it's the same way with humans. We are born with a propensity towards evil. We cannot do otherwise because that's our our nature. Now, I want to get into some specific texts that particularly teach both total depravity and total inability. And the first one comes from the words of Jesus, which are very familiar passage of scripture in John chapter three, uh, verses one through five, uh, Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, basically asks him the question, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Very interesting terminology that Nicodemus uses there when he says no one can do these signs. He uses a Greek word, dunamai. No one has the power. No one has the ability to do these things. And so Nicodemus recognizes something extraordinary in Jesus and his miracles and says, Jesus, you can't do these things unless there is a a power or ability behind you giving you that power to do those things. And Jesus kind of takes that play on words, the same Greek structure, and uses that and basically turns it on its head when he addresses Nicodemus. In in verse 3, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Same Greek structure. He cannot. Dunamai. He does not have the ability. Humans do not have the power. They do not have the ability inherently to see the kingdom of God. He lacks that ability. And the question is, well, why do you lack the ability to even see the kingdom of God? Well, the scriptures clearly teach that we've been blinded. In our sin, we've been blinded to our need for salvation. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6-4, about unbelievers, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. And so all humans have this spiritual blindness that renders them incapable of being able even to see the glory of Christ, to see their need for salvation. And that's what Jesus is addressing with Nicodemus when he says, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And then he takes it a step further and says, you cannot even enter the kingdom of God unless one is born again. And so the same Greek structure, one cannot, one does not have the ability, one does not have the capacity, one does not have the power in and of themselves to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why can't a person enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, because they are barred entrance because of their sin. We are spiritually enslaved to sin. We cannot enter. Jesus says in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. So these metaphors that Jesus is using, he's saying you can't see because you're spiritually blind. You can't enter because you're spiritually enslaved. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And so when Jesus uses this terminology about um, the, the state of humans, he's making it very clear 
that we lack the ability to enter. We lack the ability to see. And then in John 6, 44, he says, no man can come to me unless the father who draws them grants it. Same Greek structure there in John chapter 6. No, no man has the capacity, the, the ability to come. And so three different words for however you want to look at it, choosing, coming, believing. Jesus says no man can see, no man can enter, no man can come. And I don't think Jesus is talking about permission there. There's different ways you can use the word uh, can. Uh, no man can come. No one has the permission to come. I don't think Jesus is talking about permission. He's talking about ability. No man has the ability in and of themselves to come because every aspect of their life has been stained with sin. Now, Paul goes on to express this even deeper in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, when he gives basically five descriptions of the life of an unbeliever before they've been regenerated, before they've been saved. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's, that's number one. We were spiritually dead. Number two, we followed the course of this world. We were in love with the world. This world system is what we were enamored with. Number three, we followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Obviously, that's talking about Satan, that we were blinded by Satan. We were enslaved by Satan. Um, number four, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were enslaved to our own sinful flesh. And then Paul rounds it out with this universal statement of total depravity, saying we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so when you take this composite picture of what Paul is teaching, that we're spiritually dead, we're enslaved to the world, we're enslaved to Satan, we're enslaved to our sinful flesh, we're children of wrath, it's comprehensive, it's universal. He's compounding what Jesus is saying, that no man has the ability to come because we are in this state of depravity and inability. Also in Romans chapter 3, Paul gives another comprehensive picture of total depravity. Uh, Romans 3, uh, 9 through 18, he says, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And when he uses that term under sin, he means under the dominion, under the power of sin in our lives. Uh, and then he, he quotes the Psalms and says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. And then he goes on to expound about the, the, the nature and scope of that depravity by really using body parts to kind of show the effect of how comprehensive it is. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Paul's painting a comprehensive picture here of, of, of total depravity, total inability. No one understands. No one seeks. Uh, all of us have become totally worthless. We've turned aside. There's no fear of God. It's comprehensive to both Jews and Gentiles. We also know in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 9, that Paul says, the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
those are, who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, notice what Paul says here. He, he uses some pretty emphatic language. You cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And he makes a distinction of who's in the flesh. He says, you're not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. In fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. So he's talking about believers, believers who've been saved by grace, whom the Holy Spirit has come and taken up residence in them. They are not in the flesh anymore. They've come over to the side of being in the spirit. They've been made alive through Christ. But those who are lost, those who are unregenerate, cannot please God. And we have to ask the question, what is the number one thing that pleases God? What brings the most pleasure to God? Well, it's coming to his son in faith. It's believing in Jesus Christ, his son. And Paul here says that even even that, that the pleasing of God in, in, in doing that, man is unable to do that. So if you take this composite view of the depravity of humans from the words of Jesus, especially with that Greek term dunamai, he does not have the ability He does not have the power. He does not have the inherent um, ability to come to Christ, to believe in Christ, to see the kingdom of heaven, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because he's spiritually dead. He's spiritually enslaved. This has come from conception. He's inherited this um, depravity from Adam. It's rendered every aspect of the human heart, mind, and will totally depraved and totally unable to come to faith in Christ. And so because of this condition, every part of the human faculties, mind, will, emotion, affections, has been affected by the fall. And it means that we're radically corrupted, um, radically corrupted. Um, I think it's R.C. Sproul who uses the term radical corruption, and he often links it to the idea that um, it comes from the, the Latin word radix, which means root, in the sense that uh, sin has gone to the root of who we are as, as people. It's not just something that's a surface level issue, but it's, it's gone deeply into us and it's affected every fabric of our being. It's affected our minds, it's affected our hearts, it's affected our bodies, and it's even affected our will, rendering us incapable of doing anything good to please God. And it's rendering us incapable of being able to, in and of ourselves, choose positively for Christ in any way that would render ourselves being able to come to him, to believe in him, to have faith in him. And so our position teaches, or what we believe is is very similar to what Ezekiel gave as the image of the Valley of Dry Bones. He goes out and looks at this valley of dry bones that were dead, that were rotting in this valley. And and God does something very unique. He tells Ezekiel to preach to the dry bones, which doesn't really make sense because you don't really preach to dead people. You don't preach to dead bones because how are they going to listen? How are they going to live? There's an inability. There's a deadness there. Uh, There's a lack of capacity of being able to respond when being preached to. But when Ezekiel preaches, God does something amazing and sends the Holy Spirit like the wind to come and fill uh, like the breath uh, into the into the dead corpses. And so they come alive and there's this huge army that's built. And so we look at that as, as really an analogy of the human heart. Our hearts are dead. Our hearts are dry. Our hearts are, are rotting bones there in the valley until God does something. Um, a lot of people may say, make the analogy that, you know, we're just um, like we're out on, on the ocean and we're, we're drowning and we're sinking 
and we're crying out for a life preserver and our head keeps bopping out of the water. And if we just reached out and, and cried out for help, then, then somebody would give us a life preserver. And thus, meaning we have the ability to cry out. We have the ability to ask for help. Uh, we're drowning, but we're not dead yet. Our view says, no, we're not drowning. Our view says we're dead corpses at the bottom of the sea rotting. And there's no life in us until God has to come and supernaturally bring us to life through the power of the effectual call, through the power of sovereign regeneration. And once he does that, just like the Valley of Dry Bones, we go from spiritual slavery, we go from spiritual inability, we go from total depravity to being alive in Christ. And so our view is that every faculty of humans has been affected by sin, and thus we are totally depraved and totally unable. Thank you, Sean. That was a wonderful introduction to this. So now, Leighton and Braxton, you have the floor for your cross-examination. Yeah, first question, Sean, um, or I guess for either one to answer, um, if we concede that no one can come to Christ um, on their own, no one can believe all those things you just said, no one is able to, if we concede that point, how does that speak to the ability of one who's actually being confronted by God through the conviction of the Holy Spirit who he sends at Pentecost, through the the gospel that he commissions to be sent, uh, you know, he commissions to be sent to every creature once he's raised up. You, you seem to have a lot of proof text for the inability of people if left themselves. But I want you to speak to the ability of people once confronted by a God who seeks to save the lost. Uh, I think that we can we can start with an answer for that of saying um, first it's. We, we have to understand that, that the gospel is to be preached to everyone. I don't think Sean or I um, would say that we have some type of um, Gnostic knowledge of, of who the elect are, who the saved are, and so we only preach to those. I mean, we'd say the gospel is preached to all people. All people are to be confronted with the gospel. The question is, um, what will bring about conviction? What will bring about uh, faith, repentance, and belief? Uh, and and the position here is going to say, well, the 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 cause, the effect, the the you know the necessary cause is going to be the activity of the Holy Spirit bringing someone from a position of being dry bones um, to having flesh and sinews and and able to believe. You know, it's 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 transitioning a dead stone heart to a heart of flesh. Um, so it's going to be the Spirit that is the catalyst for that. Um, Sean, I don't know if you have anything to, to add. Well, let me just push back on you a little bit because um, I agree the word has to be preached and the Holy Spirit's the one who brings the word through his messengers. He's the one who produced it. It's the inspired word of God. It's the power of God into salvation. Therefore, what I'm asking is to talk about what man can, can do on their own is one thing, but to talk about the ability of man once confronted with the powerful Holy Spirit gospel truth and the conviction of the Holy Spirit sent to this world, can you speak to the ability of the person in light of the revelation of God through the gospel. Right. Leighton, let me, let me address this because I think at one time you and I had this conversation about is the gospel enough in and of itself to bring about um, the power to, to convert? And is that the question you're asking? Is, is, is the bare gospel without the effectual call or without sovereign regeneration enough to enable a person to believe when confronted with that? Is that Am I understanding you correctly? Is no, that what you're asking? It's about the sufficiency of the gospel. You know, the gospel, the word of God is spoken of as the sharper than a double-edged sword, that it's powerful, that it cuts through bone and marrow into soul and spirit. It's talked about as being, you know, the, tr the truth of God that sets men free. And therefore, why would anyone just automatically assume, based upon passages that talk about inability, if left to ourselves, 
that mankind can't respond to the appeal of God that says, you know, I want you to come and be reconciled. I want you to believe that that's somehow not sufficient to enable someone to actually respond to that appeal. Okay, so you're saying that the appeal is sufficient to bring about regeneration. The appeal is sufficient to bring about repentance, which and therefore, by God's grace, he regenerates. Okay. See, we would. I'm not. Do you answering the question? So I don't. Okay. See, right. So I would say that number one, we can't repent as a dead sinner without God first regenerating us. We need to be granted the gift of repentance, and that comes in regeneration. Philippians, I think it's one twenty nine, says God has granted. Um, us to be able to believe and also to suffer. And so we, our position would say that the deadness and sin has rendered us with the inability to repent, even when confronted with the gospel, the inability to believe, even when confronted with the gospel. And therefore the work of regeneration needs to happen in the life of a sinner before they can even repent and believe. And, and, And so we would put regeneration coming before repentance and faith in, in, in our view. Okay. Um, I have to ask a couple of questions that I think come right on the heels of that. Uh, Sean, you eloquently gave, I think the expression of the Calvinist view of Ephesians two and all that. Can you tell me what a spiritually dead man can and can't do from your perspective? As far as related to the gospel and to Christ, because we, we, we do not believe that a spiritually dead person can't um, understand facts, can't be in a worship service, can't um, take in um, knowledge, um, that, that basically that they're utterly depraved where they, they can't understand anything. What we're basically saying is that a spiritually dead person cannot respond positively in faith to Christ because his heart has not been changed yet. He's, he still has a dead, stony heart. He's still dead in his sins. And so even when confronted with the gospel, he can't do that until God um, does the regenerating work. So you would say that, uh, if I understand, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. So sure. um, a, a spiritually dead person can make all kinds of choices, obviously, and can make even moral choices. Like you said, um, it's, we're not saying with total depravity that someone is as wicked as they could possibly be. It's just every aspect of who they are is, is tainted with sin. So they can make moral choices. They can make a lot of choices. They, the, the one choice they can't make is the choice that they're commanded to make in Scripture to repent and believe. Is that right? Sean, I don't, I don't know if this will help um, kind of clarify, and you can say if you, if you agree with this distinction. Um, I think that there's a, a, an important um, distinction to be made between a moral action and a righteous action. So we might say by common grace, the unbeliever can act in an, in a, in an outwardly ethical way. You know, they can help the little old lady across the street, um, but they can't they can't perform an action in a way that is righteous in a way that's pleasing to God because it's still, uh, tainted, uh, and, 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 um, uh, and ruined by, by sin. Uh, Sean, I don't know if you, if you would agree with that, if that would help kind of clarify, um, the, the position that we're arguing for. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say that, um, there's a, there's a, there's an, there's an implied, um, understanding. I think if I understand you, Braxton, that says that, the command to repent and believe automatically means that there is an ability to repent and believe. Am I understanding your question correctly? Um, that I mean, I do. I do maintain that position. Although, uh, what I'm trying to get at is, 
I'm, I'm trying to find out what you're saying with spiritual deadness, because people have nuanced beliefs on this, even among Calvinists. And so it sounds to me like maybe my question's been answered. You do believe that people make moral choices. It's just that, but it's more, it sounds like you're saying it's more than just that those choices are not meritorious with respect to salvation. Uh, it sounds like Tyler's saying, uh, you know, with, with probably Romans eight in mind that it's not just that it's not meritorious with respect to salvation, but it doesn't please God in the least. Well, I would say that spiritually dead people make decisions all the time and they, they choose out of their nature. Um, and so a mankind that's spiritually dead's nature is not one that's wants to please God. Now they may be confronted with the law of God in like, natural law or even the law of God in governments where they, if they don't obey the law, they realize there's going to be repercussions. And so they think it's better to obey than to, to face the repercussions, but they're doing that out of duty. They're doing that because it's the law of the land. Um, they don't want to go to jail, but their affections to do that because the motivation is to please Christ is to love Christ out of, out of obedience to Christ, um, a spiritually dead person won't do that. Even though they're making a moral decision, the motivation behind it is not because they love Jesus or their heart's been regenerated. They're making a moral choice because um, God has put a conscience in their heart and they're doing it um, basically because there's some societal things placed by the law that, that they, they don't want to get in trouble. And I don't know if, if Tyler wants to expound upon that um, that that let, let, real quick let me jump in Sean because I want to push on that just a little bit because isn't it true that someone can make a decision maybe not for the purest reason for example someone may come to the Lord because they just fear hell or they want the reward and that there's a sense in which there's a there's a sense in which someone can come to God for the wrong reasons it's not out of a genuine love for him it's just I don't want to go to hell and I want forgiveness but God wants that to that true love to drive out that fear, and that moves from a fear-based relationship into a loving, grace-based relationship that fear can have a, a, a good motivator in the sense that it can lead to right relationship. Sure, sure. Would you say that's a, you know, an accurate way of maybe seeing how someone who doesn't know God can come to fear God and then eventually come to love him? I'll let Tyler answer that question. It sounds like he wants to answer yeah, I think um, inherent in the question is um, almost the assumption already of your position, though. So we're we're going to say um, that in order for that to even happen in the first place, the spirit has to be has to be acting already on the heart of the person. Hey, Tyler, um, I, I'm not really presuming our position. I'm trying to clarify this. It sounds like from what you and Sean have said, because I, I understand. I, I, I take it for granted that the Calvinist position is that a spiritually dead person can't um, respond to the gospel. I, I've got that. Um, what, what I'm trying to find out is on top of that, it sounded like Sean was saying, and I'm wondering if you would echo this, and, and if I'm misunderstanding you, Sean, you let me know, that um, if the motivation is self-interested, then that doesn't please God. Uh, even if they do something that, if say a if say a, a regenerate Christian were to do something that he, and he has noble intentions, godly intentions, he's doing it uh, out of a desire for the benefit of another and to promote the gospel or something. If, if an unregenerate person does that same thing, but it's motivated at all by self interests, then that also doesn't please God in any sense. Is that, is that fair? 
I think that's fair, but I would I would make the the massive distinction um, about um, saying that because I'm in Christ, because I'm already regenerate, that even though in my former, in my flesh, my acts, even my best ones are like filthy rags, in Christ, um, because of the righteousness of Christ, they can be pleasing to God. But it's not because of any inherent righteousness to me and to my acts. Sean, I don't oh. know if you have anything to add to that. Well, let, let me jump in on that one. Could could even your faith be a filthy rag if not for the grace of God? In other words, it, isn't believing in Christ, isn't that just a filthy rag that does nothing unless obviously it's backed up by the grace of the atonement on the cross? Right. But in, in that case, we're going to say that the the unbeliever, and this is why I was saying the question assumes, Braxton, I was referring more to, to Leighton's question. Um, at that point, we're going to say it, it's not an act of faith. And you can't have even that first act of faith unless the spirit regenerates uh, and, and prompts that faith in the first place. But I, but I think my point is, is that even if that act of faith is as we claim it to be, from the responsibility of man versus the sovereign grace of God, as you would say it is, then even even that act of faith, from our perspective, is just a filthy rag. In other words, there's nothing meritorious about it. It has to be backed up by the grace of the atoning work of Christ. So if Abraham believed, which he did, had Christ not come, Abraham would go to hell because Abraham still needed, though he was declared righteous, he still needed atonement. So faith in and of itself, even if a free action of man is not in itself notorious, even from our perspective. Would you agree? I guess what I would like to say in, in response to maybe Braxton's question, and I, if I understand it correctly, is that can a believer who's been regenerate still do acts of um, uh, in obedience to the law with a bad attitude, and, and is that still pleasing to God? And I think the issue is, for a lost person who's unregenerate, they lack two things. They lack the ability and the desire to please God because they are not in Christ. They've not been justified. The, the righteousness of Christ has not been imputed to them. So everything that they do, whether moral, whether good, um, is always going to be stained with sin because they're not in Christ. Whereas a believer who's in Christ, who's been regenerated, who has the imputed righteousness of Christ, even the good things that we do or the bad things we do, um, we, we are in a position of, 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 of being pleasing to God because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And so I think we're trying to compare apples to oranges between a regenerate person and a non-regenerate person when it comes to pleasing God. And a lot of it has to do with the imputed righteousness of Christ being the basis for how God accepts anything that we do meritorious once we're saved. Okay. I did want to follow up on a couple of leaps that I thought Sean made um, where you talked about how you thought seeing the kingdom with his conversation with Nicodemus, that seeing the kingdom somehow equaled our seeing our need to confess so as to enter the kingdom. Don't you find that a little bit of a link, um, maybe a leap in the scriptures that it just says that in order to see the kingdom, that equals also the ability to see our need to confess so as to enter the kingdom? Well, it depends on how you define the kingdom. Um, you know, that's a comprehensive term there. But I, I think what Jesus is saying there, especially to a Jewish person, Nicodemus, he would understand you you can't enter, you can't see the eternal life that comes by being in God's kingdom, that you lack that ability. Uh, and, and so, yeah, you may say, well, he, the text doesn't specifically say he can't see his need for salvation. 
But I think it's implied by Jesus by saying he can't see the kingdom or enter the kingdom, meaning that um, he, that that whole issue of of being not able to to understand the need for it is wrapped up in that. I don't know if Tyler would want to well, add to that. I would just add, you know, the ability to for a leopard to change his spots does that also equal the inability of the leopard to see that his spots need to be changed, especially when revealed to him by someone who's able to change them? Does that make sense? I guess. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I understand what you're saying. Well, that is time for our cross-examination period. And now we're going to turn it over to Layton and Braxton to affirm the ability of man. All right. Um, by the way, I appreciate you guys allowing me to be a part of this. And this is a real uh, friendly discussion. I appreciate those. You could sum up much of what I think the Bible teaches on this by considering that the Bible in the Old and the New Testament seems to present us with a story of choice, thoroughly. Man is presented with the options of either trusting God or rejecting his commands. This, I think, strongly implies that man genuinely has the capacity to do so. Now, it's not my desire to shotgun with proof text here, but allow me to give a nice spread to illustrate the point. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, verse 11 says, For this command, and by the way, this is the command to keep the law. For this command, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it? In other words, the the Israelites were in a particular spot of blessing because they didn't have to go somewhere else to hear the law of God. But it's important that Moses makes the point here that you, you can respond to this. It's not too difficult. It's not out of reach. And, um, then he f- finishes in verse 19. I'll skip ahead just for the sake of time. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. By the way, there's some self-interest there, I think. Genesis 4, 6, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. In other words, uh, this situation, you've put yourself in this and it doesn't have to be this way. You can master this. You can be like Abel if that's what you want to do. You got to make that choice. A uh, famous passage always gets brought up in these discussions. Joshua 24, 15, uh, choose you this day who you'll serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Isaiah 7, 16 through 17, I think is interesting because in a, discuss- in a discussion of something else, it, it makes this passing comment. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. This passage takes for granted that there's an age at which the boy can choose to do the good rather than the evil. Now, I think very pertinent to the cross-examination period we just had in Isaiah 56 verses 4 and 5, it also says, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. It seems to me when we look at the Old Testament, there certainly seems to be present a story of choice. Choose this and I'll bless you. Choose that and I'll curse you. And there are other passages we can look at. Choose this and you'll have life. Choose this and death. And I think this carries through to the New Testament. This still seems to be true. The Bible teaches that what is necessary for salvation is not a special primary regeneration of the spirit before belief is possible, but instead that someone believes 
or has faith. John 6, 40, everyone who believes on him may have everlasting life. John eleven twenty five. 25, he that believes on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John 20, 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And I won't read all of these, but you know the other texts like Acts 16, 31, Romans 5, 2, Galatians 3, 26, Ephesians 1, 13, and so on. So there's not a single verse, as far as I can tell, that outright says that we obtain faith as a result of being born again. But there is uh, verse after verse after verse that says we become Christians, receive the Spirit, become children of God, become in Jesus, all synonyms for salvation, by faith or belief. As Leighton already hinted at, and the way that you have this belief or this faith is not through some special regenerating work of the Spirit initially, but uh, through hearing the Word of God. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First Thessalonians 1.5, for our God did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know, the kind of men we approve to be among you for your sake. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And we could go on with a couple of other passages there. So I think that these texts in the Old and New Testament teach that someone believes or they hear and then they believe. Um, On top of this, what these explicit passages seem to teach, I think that there's some implicit things taught in Scripture. And we've talked a little bit about this in the cross-examination period, but Romans 1.20 always comes up in these discussions, and I think for good reason. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. I know that this is really the sticking point when we come to these discussions. Does this kind of a passage imply that belief is possible for people who are depraved, for people who are sinful, for people who have not yet been regenerated? I really think that it does. And I know that this is kind of um, uh, the point of (laughs) the discussion today, but I almost think it goes without saying. I mean, I almost don't even think it needs argumentation to say that if God's going to hold someone responsible for not believing, and he's going to go so far as to inspire Paul to write that they are without excuse for not believing, then it carries with it the implication and the very strong implication that they could choose to do otherwise. Um, I have a four-year-old daughter. If I'm in my living room and I say to my four-year-old, and she's not a very big four-year-old daughter either. She's very small. If I said, could you please pick up, there's a, there's a doll lying there on the floor. Could you pick that up? Probably weighs a half a pound and carry it to your bedroom. If she doesn't do that, I could say, well, she's, she's without excuse because she very well could pick up that uh, doll and take it to her bedroom. It's within her capabilities to do that. If on the other hand, I said to my four-year-old daughter, I'm lying on this couch here, sweetheart. I'd like you to pick up this couch with my laying on it and carry me and the couch up to my bedroom, up to your bedroom. And she doesn't do it. I think she's got a real good excuse. I don't think I could say you're without excuse uh, because it's not even possible for her to do it. It's unchangeably, unalterably impossible for her to do so. And I think we reason that way when we think about ourselves and worldly experiences like this, and somehow we think completely differently when it comes to God. If I were to command my daughter to do that, and then punished her for not doing it harshly, I think you would say, well, this guy's not very good of a father, I don't think. I don't think he's being very benevolent to his kids. But somehow when it comes to God, it's a completely different sort of a question. Now, I think what brings all of this together before I turn it over to Leighton is this. I really don't know for sure what each of my debating opponents here uh, would say about the nature of human freedom 
in general. Now, I don't bring up philosophical terms to confuse things or to get us off of the scripture, but for precision, just like we use non-biblical terms to make our case so that we understand each other and analogies like I just used. I think we need to use philosophical terms for precision. So I'd like to know what you guys uh, would describe yourselves as in terms of your view of freedom. Are you compatibilists, determinists, libertarians? I'm a soft libertarian, but I think that becomes important for this debate. So I think that the Bible gives us a story of choice, and I think it explicitly teaches that you hear, you believe, and that's when uh, the Spirit works and you're regenerated. Whereas, uh, and then there's the implication through passages like Romans one that um, that if you're if you're if you're punished for making the wrong choice, then you had the ability to make the right choice. With that, I'll turn it over to Layton. Thanks. I, I think adding on to that, I would say when you know when Jesus was here in the flesh. I think there's a misunderstanding of what his purpose was because he's clearly not attempting to persuade everyone to come in great numbers. Um, like we see in Acts when Peter preaches at Pentecost and thousands come in in faith. It seems as Jesus has an, a, a different goal. And he, in fact, there's over seven different times in the New Testament where it's recorded where he tells his apostles specifically, don't tell anybody that I am the Christ. He's not entrusting himself to everyone, as John chapter 2 says. He's not drawing everyone to himself while here during his public ministry. While down from heaven, he is not trying to get a great following. Um, Moreover, we also see Jesus purposefully speaking in parables. Why? What would be the purpose of that? He's, He's doing this in order to prevent the Jewish leaders, the wise and learned, from coming to faith and repentance before the right time. Even as the Apostle Paul noted in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, Jesus understood that had large numbers of Israelites believed in him before the right time, they would not have crucified him. Redemption on Calvary would not have been accomplished. Therefore, the Lord graciously taught in parables to those on the outside. This concept of God telling his followers not to reveal his identity is referred to by some scholars as what is called the, quote, messianic secret. It goes right along with what is often referred to as judicial hardening, which is God's judgment in giving men over, also from Romans chapter 1, giving men over to the rebellion, sealing them in their unbelief so as to accomplish even a greater purpose through their rebellion. Which brings us to passages like John chapter 6, which is one of the most referenced chapters in the discussion over mankind's abilities to respond willingly to the gospel appeal. The audience in John chapter 6 is a group of unbelieving Israelites looking for free food. And what, what do we know about the Israelites? If we look at them, we see that scripture reveals that they have become calloused. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them, as Acts 28, 27 says. Notice it doesn't say they're born calloused, but over time they have grown calloused in their self-righteous religiosity, which ultimately prevents them from hearing, seeing, responding to the revelation of God. You see, at this vital time in human history, when Christ is here, Israel is being judicially hardened or cut off or given over, or as Romans 11, 8 says, sent a spirit of stupor so as to seal them in their already calloused condition. Scripture tells us that God is hardening the callous Jews in order to accomplish a greater redemptive purpose through their rebellion. So why couldn't Israel believe while they were in the flesh? Why are are the Jewish audience in John chapter 6 unable to believe in Christ? Is it because they were rejected by their maker before the world began? Is it because they're hated by God, as the Calvinist would uh, assert? Of course not. 
We, we see over and over again in the text where God expresses his love and his genuine longing for Israel to come. Romans 10, 21, God is quoted as saying, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient, obstinate people. Ezekiel 18, 32, God pleads saying, why will you die, O people of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. In Luke 19, 42, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and saying, even you, had you known on this day that I would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Again, a, a sign of the hardening of Israel. So why can't the Israelites in John chapter six believe in Christ? They are being temporarily blinded in their already callous condition, given over so as to accomplish redemption for the world. This is not about God rejecting most of humanity before the world ever began, as the Calvinistic system reads into these kinds of texts. You see, it's it's not until Christ is raised up that he commissions the gospel to be sent to every creature. And that is the means he draws all men to himself, as John chapter 12, verse 32 says, when I am lifted up, I will draw them into myself. He doesn't start drawing men even until he completes redemption on the cross and until he commissions the gospel, which is the means of drawing, and he commissions it to be sent to every creature. Calvinists will argue that these rebellious Israelites can't come to, to Christ ultimately because they're born spiritually dead. Now, I believe, as we've noted, Calvinists have taken this concept of being spiritually dead far beyond what Scripture ever says. They use passages like the, the example of Lazarus, for example. But Scripture never makes the soteriological link from Lazarus to spiritual deadness. A better analogy would be that we see in the prodigal son, where upon his return home, the father actually says of the prodigal, he was once lost, but now he's found. He was once dead, and now he's alive. Calvinists will also reference John chapter 3, verse 10, saying, no one is righteous, no one seeks God. And we agree, no one does seek God on their own. But how does that prove that no one will respond willingly to a God who actively seeks the lost. We agree that no one is righteous, but notice that in the, the the very next chapter, Paul says Abraham was righteous. So is Paul contradicting himself? He's saying in one chapter, no one's righteous. And then the very next chapter, he says Abraham was righteous. Well, he's not contradicting himself. He's speaking about two different kinds of righteousness, one which comes by law through works and the other which comes by grace through faith. The first is unattainable. No one, not even Abraham, has fulfilled the demands of God's law. All have fallen short of that standard. But the second form of righteousness, by grace through faith, that is attainable. Abraham wasn't able to attain righteousness by the means of the law, but he was by means of faith. Calvinists have wrongly concluded that because mankind is unable to attain righteousness by works through the law, that they must equally be unable to attain righteousness by grace through faith. Calvinists make the same mistake when they appeal to Romans chapter 8, as Sean did where it says, for the mind has set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, nor can it. And again, we agree. But tell me this, how is proof that we cannot fulfill God's law also proof that we can't believe in the one who fulfilled that law for us? Calvinists, again, make the same mistake of assuming that man's inability to attain righteousness by law through works equals man's inability to attain righteousness by grace through faith. And it simply does not follow. Calvinists will go on to appeal to verse 8, which says those who are in the realm of flesh cannot please God. And they argue that believing the gospel would be pleasing to God. So those in the flesh can't believe the gospel because that would be pleasing to God. But if I warn my rebellious teenage son saying, hey, son, while you're in rebellion, you can't please me. Does that suggest that the child is unable to heed my warning, humble himself and repent in his rebellion? Of course not. It only suggests that as long as my child continues to rebel, that he can't please me. 
And this is an appeal to turn your mind from the flesh, as this text talks about, to focus your mind upon the spirit and the gospel revelation, which is bringing to us by the power of the gospel. Thanks. All right. Uh, oh, and it's our cross-examination for 15, right? Yes, that is correct. The Calvinists now have the cross. Okay. Um, so Braxton, um, the you you brought up a lot of verses um, that show that the Bible says that man does act in faith and does choose God. Now, um, no Calvinist would disagree with that. So at that point, we're just going to stipulate that as a fact of reality. Um, however, can you concede that these verses could all be phenomenological? That is that they could simply describe what people do, that they do respond, but not necessarily address the necessary conditions for such a response to be possible. Well, two things on that. One, I would want to know in what sense you understand this regenerating ability in the Old Testament with respect to people before Christ. Um and his earthly ministry. But really what I'm trying to do is just show that the, the theme of the Bible seems to be one of choice. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you do this, I'll curse you. If you do this life, if you do this death, it really seems like there's a genuine choice there to be made. And if you uh, argue that they are unable to respond to this on their own, apart from some special work of God, then it seems that it's kind of a farce. I mean, I don't want to use too strong a language here. <laughs> I don't know if farce is too strong of language, but it really seems like it's kind of a charade. God is, uh, is God um, in Genesis 4, for example, when he's uh, encouraging Cain to make the right choice. And is, is, is this just a charade? Does he really mean it? Is, is it a genuine possibility that, that he can do this? Or, uh, you know, what's going on there exactly? I, this has been, I don't want to go off on a tangent about this, but it does kind of make me wonder about the Calvinist distinction between the general and effectual call. What, what really would be the point of the general call? It seems to me that it's, it would be disingenuous on God's part when looking at these Old Testament and New Testament passages if um, there's not a real genuine ability to make a choice between two options. All right. Uh, Leighton, um in your cross-examination about, uh, you asked a question about the power of the gospel in and of itself, that, that, that the appeal should be sufficient. Um, so I want to ask you, do you think the gospel is a spiritual truth or a natural truth? It's a spiritual truth. Okay. If it's a spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that natural man uh, cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God and can't understand them because they're spiritually uh, appraised. Um, he even says that it's foolishness to them. At that point, how can the natural man understand it if it requires the spirit to understand it? Well, the context of that passage is not the gospel. The context of that passage, I believe, is him helping people to discern whether someone is you know, demon-possessed or not. But with regard to how one comes to understand the gospel, th th this goes to Ephesians chapter 3, that the gospel ultimately contains within it mysteries that have been hidden for ages past. These are things that were not understood and would have never been understood had it not been for the inspiration of God bringing it through the holy apostles and writing it for us. And so the gospel itself and the scriptures we have in front of us are the means by which the Holy Spirit has explained things that we would not have known under otherwise. That's why I really harp on the concept of, of the scriptures which talk about man's abilities all by themselves versus man's ability when confronted with the gospel, Holy Spirit inspired truth brought the bringing the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the law and the gospel. Those are, those are powerful means. And those means I don't think should be underestimated simply because we, we read passages that talk about what we would be like had God not done anything. 
I, yeah, I think I would, I would disagree with that context. I think, I think first and second Corinthians is, is clearly talking about the gospel, the, the word of the cross, that's foolishness. Um, in, in first Corinthians one eighteen, it talks about how it's foolishness to those who are pairing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And later that they preach Christ to the crucified, uh, but to those who are called, uh, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So in, in, in first Corinthians one and two, um, is it the, the worldly unbeliever who believed the gospel or those who have already been called by God? I, and I may, I may have thought you were referencing another passage because there was, there's one passage that, that Calvinists used to talk about, you know, can't confess, confess the Lord except by the Spirit. And I thought that's what the one you were referencing. So I may have just misheard you. But yeah, for, first and second Corinthians, the second, the, especially first Corinthians, you know, 214, for example, um, you know, where, where are you, is that the one you're talking about where it says the person, um, without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit, but considers yes. them foolish. Yes. Can't understand them because they're discerned only through the spirit. Well, we would agree that the, the deep things of God, which is what verse 10 is talking about, the things that are in Christ, God's spirit, they have to be made known to us. And so the question is, how does he make those things known to us? And the answer for the Calvinist and maybe even some Arminians, I don't know, um, it, it might, might be, well, he supernaturally gives this kind of enlightening inside of the heart of individuals. But during that time, you've got to understand that the scriptures are just being written for the very first time. And the way that Ephesians chapter three, when he says that this mystery has been made known to me by revelation, speaking of himself, Paul, and it has been, uh, and as I've already written briefly in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight. So how will they understand his insight? By reading this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, which is the same thing he references up in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as well. It's not been made known to other people in other generations, as it is now being revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And so it's it's a mystery made known to me by revelation, and it's an administration of grace, God's grace that is given to me, the apostle, for you, the, the believer. And so you have a responsibility to believe the spirit revelation given to the apostle so as to understand otherwise mysterious truths that have been, been hidden for generations. And so this is the means by which God makes you able to discern otherwise undiscernible truths of the spirit. Does that make sense? So just just to clarify to make sure I'm understanding you, um, are, are you saying that that um, and and I feel like I'm kind of misunderstanding. So just, just in in all honesty, um, are you saying that uh, Paul would think that now his teaching is foolishness to those who are perishing, uh, but, but to, to those who are, who are called the power of God, or is it the gospel? Well, I mean, that that his his writing is, or is is it the proclamation of the gospel? Well, any, anything could be deemed by a, a sinner as being foolish. But the difference is between us is that we believe that people freely, you know, according to our definition of freely, obviously, freely deem something as foolish. We don't believe that they're born, decreed by God to deem his own truth foolishness. And so that's why we interpret those passages differently, because if, if the, the, the individual hears the gospel or they hear any revelation of God and deem it as foolish, that's their choice in doing so. I don't blame God for his decreeing them to, de- to declare God's own truth as foolish. Um, and, I, and I think if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians, really about the wisdom of the world versus the revelation of God, and which one are you going 
to to um, trust in? Are you going to trust in the wisdom of the world? Or are you going to trust in the revelation of God and the word of God being brought to you even right now through holy apostles inspired by the Holy Spirit, bringing you the very words of the inspired words of God, power of God into salvation? What do you make, though, specifically of the section that says it takes the spirit of God to even understand the things of God because they're spiritually appraised? Is the gospel of the spirit of God? I think so. Yes. Okay, then that's what it takes. I just don't think it takes more. You know, in other words, it's not it's not God has to grace his grace. It's God's grace is the gospel. God brings the gospel through Holy Spirit inspired men so that we can understand it. And you're responsible to understand it and reply. But and, is the passage saying that the 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 gospel is of the spirit or is it saying, uh, as he explicitly says, the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit because they're spiritually appraised. So it's speaking well, about their here, ability here, here, to accept the, 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 it's not just about the nature of the message. It, right. It's, it's how the person is to appraise it. Is that correct? I think you're, you're assuming that when he says things of the spirit, that he must be meaning the gospel revelation. When earlier in verse 10, it says these, he's talking about the deep things of God, the things in the spirit of God, which have been hidden from prior generations. He's not talking about things that are already revealed and made known. Plus, if you look at the entire context, uh, three verses down, he goes on to talk about other people who can't receive it. And these people are called brethren who are living carnal lives. And he says, you can't receive the meat of the word, but only the milk of the word. Why? Because you're choosing to set your mind on the things of the flesh. You're living carnally. So you're not able to receive these truths that I'm teaching. You've got to set your mind on the spirit to be able to understand these, these truths of God. And you've got to be listening to spirit filled men of God giving you these truths. And so the context is not about people's inability, you know, in, in inborn inability to understand plainly revealed truth brought by God himself. It's it's about how God is making himself known even through holy apostles and, and revealing truths that have not been revealed up to this point. Um, okay. Romans 3.10 says that there there is none righteous, no, not one. Does that mean that no man is righteous apart from Jesus? Or does it does it mean that there are some men who are? Does it mean that there's possible that there's some who are righteous apart from Jesus? Which type of righteousness are you speaking of? Righteousness by works or righteousness by grace through faith? Any. There are those who are righteous by grace through faith, but there is no one righteous by the means of the law. No. So there's no that that, that is a universal category that there are none righteous on their own. Cur- yeah, righteousness according to the law. No, there's no one righteous according to the law. Okay. Romans 3.11 says that there are none who understand, none who seek God. Same question. I'm, I'm sorry. I missed what you're – how does that different than what I've just said? I'm not understanding your – So the I, I'm, I'm wondering if those those all those nuns, the, the none who understand, none who seek God is the same universal category as the previous verse, that there's none who are, are that way apart from Christ. Right. And it, it goes back to the original the original statement we were just saying, if left to yourself, of course, you know, like he said, these things were hidden in pr- previous generations. If, if he never revealed, then they would never know. How do they believe in one they've never heard? And so, yeah, no one does understand. No one does understand the mysteries of the gospel unless the gospel is revealed, unless it's but, brought. So but the category says that specifically none seek God. So um, are you saying that there are some who seek God after the gospel is pronounced? Can I can I jump can no, I jump saying, in here for a second, Leighton? Because we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, you know, I here's a, a thing that I think that happens with these discussions quite often. I think that we have to understand that although this is inspired scripture, Paul is speaking here uh, 
within his own personality and his own context. And I think we're putting too much emphasis. For example, I do think it's true that there is none who is righteous, not even one, uh, none who understands. But is it really true that there's no one who seeks for God? Uh, I think that if we take it that woodenly and that literally, which is uh, a reference to Psalm 14, I, I think that we we find that's not necessarily the case. If you go over to Psalm 14, you find that David says this very thing, and no one seeks after God. No one, well, except for the generation of the righteous, and of course, except for me, and except, for, of course, for a lot of other people. Um, I think what we see here is an exasperated statement about, uh, in general, the way things are. It'd be like if I said, man, everybody accepts gay marriage today. Man, nobody go, has Sunday night services at church. Anymore. Well, do I really mean everyone? Well, no, of course not everyone. Now, it is true that none is righteous, but I, I think what's being said here, I think you just see Paul making an exasperated statement about the nature of man. After all, if you take it that woodenly and that literally, then what do you do with verse 13, um, where it says in the second half of the verse, the poison of asps is under their lips. Should we take that literally and woodenly? I mean, if we take a cotton swab and, and put it behind the lip of an unregenerate person, are we going to find that there's some poison down in there? Well, of course not. I just think you have to look at this and see what's being said. He's quoting poetry. He's quoting some Old Testament statements to make the point that in exasperation, this is the state of man today. It's awful. So so is it your position now? Uh, I, I'm also trying to see about the the hermeneutic that will be used if all the alls and nuns need to mean alls and nuns. Um, but that'll, that'll come up later. But is it your position then that someone apart from their generation of the spirit can fear God, can understand God, can seek God and can do good contrary to Romans, uh, 3.11? Well, I think you could, I'm not saying that those things aren't true. I'm saying, I'm not sure you can make that case based on his quotations here from the old Testament, because I don't think that's what Paul's trying to do. I think Paul's trying to make a general statement about the nature of man. I don't think he's trying to give a, a, a systematic theological treatise on, on, uh, the doctrines of grace. I think he's trying to say there is none righteous, not even one. Of course, that's true. We know based on other scriptures, uh, there's none who understands. We know that's true based on other scriptures. There's no one who seeks for God. Well, I think this is where it's a general statement. And I, I realize that when I say things like this, that often it sounds to some people like, well, you're not taking the text for what it says. That's not the plain reading of the text, or that's not, you know, uh, you're not taking it literally enough, meaning you're not taking it seriously. Well, you know, if it's the case that this is how it's supposed to be taken, then to take it otherwise would uh, would mean we get it wrong. So I, I think that um, you have to take passages like this where it's questionable and and make the determination based on other passages. Can I just <clears throat> chime in here real quick? Um, when you say, Braxton, that people do not, obviously there's people that seek God. I guess the ultimate question is, do they seek the benefits of what God can give them, or do they truly seek God in a saving type of way? Um, and is it talking about, in the Psalms, believers seeking God post-salvation as thirsting after Him, of seeking Him? Um, I guess my question is, how do you, how can you look at all of those as not being universal, but then all of a sudden when it comes to seeking, it's like, well, that, that may not be the exact way it, it's being. Well, I think that what, it's a great question. I think, first of all, to answer your first question, I do think that some people seek God for the benefits. As Leighton said a while ago, I actually think that's the initial way. I often think of it like this, and I think it's completely consistent. I think when I, when I first saw my wife, I, I don't personally believe in love at first sight. I, I think we have a term for that. It's either called physical attraction or lust. 
Um, but I saw her and I thought I sure would personally, for my benefit, like to be around her. I, I, I think that she's got qualities that, that I would like to be in the presence of. I think I'd, I think I'd really like to go to dinner with her. I think there's some benefits there for me. Now, once I, uh, now, if, if you want to judge me for being carnal, this is the thinking of an 18 year old. Um, but whenever I was around her for a little while, it didn't take very long before I wanted to give of myself for the good of another. And so um, I think the same thing is ha- happens in scripture as Leighton mentioned, or rather with our relationship to God. I do think it's the case that a lot of people come first to Jesus because they hear the gospel, they believe it, and they don't want to go to hell. Or they hear the gospel and they believe it and they want to be a part of that community or they want a father or whatever benefit that comes with that. And so um, I do think that's a motivation. I don't think it's necess- it necessarily um, uh, disqualifies uh, salvation or something. Um, and, and in terms of taking certain parts of this passage one way and certain parts of the other, I think that what he's trying to do is give a statement that we don't need to take. I think that we can put too much emphasis on parts of it and not enough emphasis on others. If you're going to put, you know, I mean, you don't even take verse 13 to be that wooden and that literal, but then, uh, I'm assuming that you would take issue with my saying that, well, yeah, I mean, some people do seek God because Paul certainly is and others are. And in David's case, he mentions people that are. And um, but but then uh, not with the there's none that understands none that are righteous. I, I just think that even you on your reading of this would have to take certain parts of it as not quite that literal unless you do want to affirm, which I know you don't, <laughs> that uh, unregenerate people's mouths are literal open graves and they literally have the poison of asp- 